You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, Try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico, with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes, is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup, and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is the co-founder of Bonobos, Andy Dunn. I think people connect so much more to vulnerable disclosure than they do to triumphant stories. That is the co-founder of Bonobos, Andy Dunn, and the author of the book, Burn Rate. And I'm just going to read the back cover of this book because I really think it encapsulates his story so well. At 28 years old, fresh from Stanford's MBA program and steeped in the move fast and break things ethos of Silicon Valley, Andy Dunn was building a buzzy startup out of his Manhattan apartment. As he struggled to keep Bonobos afloat, Dunn was also harboring a wrenching secret a diagnosis of bipolar disorder that he received a decade earlier after a manic episode in college. I'm going to stop it there because this story of one man's attempt to break into the world of startups to create and scale a company and then also to deal with his own 
mental health issues is really fascinating, and I can't wait to dive into this conversation with Andy Dunn. Hi, Andy. Hey, what's up? How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, of course. And I will say you have a very nice uh, background. Not everybody does. Thank you. Yeah. This is my little uh, man cave office. Yeah, slash it's definitely mood lighting. It feels very serene, yet very um, rich, like you need a cigar and maybe a glass of bourbon. Should we do a cigar and a glass of bourbon <laughs> for the podcast? I, I'm not opposed to it. I don't know if my three-year-old down the hallway has ever smelled cigar smoke or have his dad like drunk by midday. Um, I read your book in two days, first of all. I picked it up at the airport on a business trip, and which is I have three children, so it's like the only time I ever get to read is when I'm on an airplane. I started it, I finished, I, I continued that night, and I finished it by the time I landed back at O'Hare. And it was riveting, it was fascinating, and I'm thrilled that you're joining us for To Dime for the podcast because of several reasons. One, this book, to me, is like four books in one. It's like a coming-of-age story. It is a business book, a startup journey with great drama, by the way, great drama. And then also it is the story of self-reflection. And it is a very important story on mental health and specifically your mental health journey. So that's what I found most fascinating. The people that are on to dine for are all creators and builders. Yeah. And so you definitely fall into that category, but you you add on all these other layers. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to kind of pick your brain and hear more about this book. But I, I always start the podcast by asking the guest's favorite restaurant. I know you're from Downers Grove. Yeah. You're a Chicago guy, but you lived yeah. in New York. You've yeah. eaten at some great restaurants, which you mentioned in the book. Where's your favorite spot? I'm going to go with just based on the, if you, if you think about your favorite spot as the place that you've gone to the most times, Mirandi. Yes. Which is a- In the village. In bistro kind of affair in the West Village of New York, a couple blocks from where I lived. I had a stage in my life, this should be some indication- I had a standing reservation for brunch at noon on Saturdays and Sundays at Mirandi. <laughs> and sometimes I wouldn't even know who I was going to go with, but I figured, you know, by- <laughs> I was going to say, were those a, a bevy day, of women coming in and out of this Mirandi dates? It was, it was friends, it was dates. And I always found for dates, brunch is such an unassuming date. It's so- Sure. It's so low fidelity. You yes. Know, it's low pressure. It's like, who doesn't want to get brunch, you know? Right. Brunch is fun. Everyone and brunch, brunch is so fun if the group size gets bigger and you're around the table with friends. So really fond memories of of brunches at Mirandi. And also, as one does with any great restaurant, amazing for dinner. So yes. I would do business dinners there. You know, when people were in from out of town, it was kind of a known thing during the recruiting process at Bonobos that there was for an executive going to be the Mirandi dinner. Um, <laughs> and my mom even joked, you know, it stands for more Andy. Um, <laughs> Because it was just it was just the spot. And my favorite Mirandi story is actually it was it was Christmas Eve, maybe in the in the kind of the early 2010s, and everyone was gone. Everyone was out of town. So I was quote unquote alone in New York. So I went to the bar at Mirandi and just, you know, sat down and it was snowing On Christmas outside. Eve. And yeah, I ordered a, you know, ordered a glass of wine and they have the dinner of the seven fishes that night. 
Yeah. Which is amazing and very hard to do and was recently featured in an episode of The Bear. For those of you who are fans of The Bear, there's a mm-hmm. whole episode about the dinner of the seven fishes. And as is so true, Miranda, a woman came to me at the bar and said, hey, you're dining alone. Would you like to join us? And I was like, great. And it was her and eight of her girlfriends. And so here I am at this table thinking like, thank God I had no plans tonight. Yeah, more Andy. That is hilarious. I will, I will never look at that restaurant the same. Thank you for that story. I always say restaurants are the beginning of people's story. And yeah. you you just proved it with your story because you really embraced New York and lived it to its fullest in the sense of living, breathing New York City in the startup world and trying to chase success right? Literally chasing success on a daily basis. Let's begin at the beginning. You grew up in Downers Grove. Your mother is Indian. Your father is white. And you had a very, you skipped third grade. I'm just wondering at what point, was it your mother? Was it your father that you felt like the entrepreneurial path was for you? Or did that not come till college? That came so much later. I think a lot of who we are, we all know this is our role models growing up. Yes. And my mom was an x-ray tech. My dad was a U.S. history teacher. And neither of them were in medicine, but we were surrounded by doctors, first because of my mom's work and also because in the broader extended family, there were just a lot of physicians. So that was sort of my North Star, sort of typical, you know, you were gonna be first, a doctor. Generation, first generation, you know, Indian, half Indian kid was be a doctor. That was my reference yeah. point. And so- even up into the point that I got into college, I did the whole thing, the organic chemistry and the physics. And I was in the class for the MCAT and completed the full like college pre-medical curriculum. And then I noticed something fascinating that's been a guiding light for me since, which is when there are other people who are way more passionate about something than you, don't do that thing. You know, mm. figure out what it is that you're uniquely passionate about. And I had these really close friends, fraternity brothers of mine, many of whom wanted to go into medicine, three in particular, who I was close friends with. One is a neurosurgeon now, one is an orthopedic surgeon, the other one is an ENT surgeon. And what did they all have in common in college? They cared so much more about pre-med curriculum and getting into medical school than I did. I was kind of winging it. I think I got a C plus in organic chemistry, which was the worst I've ever done in a class. I just didn't care enough. It was a sign too. If you were you yeah. were so good in other subjects, if you're getting a C plus, maybe you should focus your energy at something you're better at. I wasn't that good at any subjects in college. I was partying too much. <laughs> I was good. I was a good student in high school. And then like, you know, many immigrant kids kind of all of a sudden all these rules and this framework just disappeared. And it was yeah. like, whoa, I'm going to just kind of let it rip. But it was the beginning of a journey of like, well, who do I want to be in life if this thing that has been animating me as kind of the goal for a decade, if that's not the thing, then what is it? And to be candid, I didn't, I didn't know. You didn't know. Okay. I didn't know. I just, I tried to figure out, and this paralleled my personal life, how do I not limit my options so that the most possible futures are availed to me? Yes. And as you know, like at some point that doesn't work because at some point you have to be good at one thing or at least for a a large swath of your career. I just watched the Schwarzenegger documentary and Uh that was fascinating because he was good at three things in his life and was way more intentional about it than I realized. But for me, that entrepreneurial bug didn't come really until I got to, you know, Stanford Business School for graduate school more so than college. 
Let's talk about your relationship with Brian Spolly and how really the, the seeds, the genesis of Bonobos started. Yeah, so Spaley. Spaley, thank you. Spaley and Bonobos. So Spaley was my business school roommate, housemate for two years. Yes. And we were we were thick as thieves. We were great friends. We did everything together, studied together, partied together, went for, you know, bike rides and trail runs and all kinds of good things. And I do think a lot of business relationships are friendships first. Mm-hmm. And then I think there are friendships that emerge from professional collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I found, you know, 44 years old now, what I found is that a friendship that emerges from a professional relationship can be far easier because the conditions were set initially as a professional relationship than a friendship which is really based on, I think platonic friendship, you could argue, is the most pure and beautiful relationship on earth because there is no duty or obligation, mm-hmm. whereas all other kinds of relationships, parent-child, spouse, brother-sister, there's there's an obligation to it. Friendship is just like a free market. That's interesting because, you know, people always say never go into business with your friends. And you did exactly that. And this book, in a way, is what could happen? (laughs) What could happen when you go into business with your friends? Brian had an idea for a company and really it was really an idea for a product first, correct? Yeah. Take me from that moment to kind of the early days of Bonobos. 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 Well, yeah, it's kind of like, but it's hard to say. It's like bananas. I try yes. to think of it. It's like bananas. Yes. Or the Bose speaker brand. Bonobos. Thank you. Bonobos. I am a customer. I buy for my husband. Actually, I have, I have a funny story about that. I was in the subway in New York once. We had just come out with shirts. And so it was really new that we had shirts because we were rooted in pants. I guess it gets to your question in a way of kind of the original signature hero item of the brand. Right. And I'm a big believer that brands need a hero item something that you're just known for and famous for. And pants was it. That was pants. And so we were five years in before we started to get known a little bit for shirts. And it was because we had these really dazzling prints that we would use in the liner of our pants that we started to put onto shirts. And now there's a whole short sleeve kind of fun, like party shirt or day at the beach shirt line called Riviera at Bonobos. And it was one of the first times I saw, we used to call it in the wild, if you saw a pair of bonobos, you know, in New York on the subway, someone's on the street, it was like an in the wild sighting. And at first those were so amazing. And then we got to a point where it was like all the time, you know, which is pretty amazing. So I see this guy wearing a bonobo shirt. I'm on the subway, you know, riding from where my house was, apartment was on like 6th Avenue and 10th Street, just a couple stops up to the Flatiron District. And I just said to him, I said, is that a bonobo's shirt? And he goes, it's actually pronounced Bonobos. <laughs> and we only had like one more stop. And I was like, how do I explain this? And I said, oh. I, I said, I've, I've got a funny story for you. <laughs> and then we and then he was just got red in his face. Oh, and then I had to get yeah. off the subway. I was like, yeah, Bye. yeah, you're wrong. Sorry. <laughs> so look, Spaley was my best friend at business school. And he had this entrepreneurial dream. And that dream was to make a better fitting pair of men's pants, which was really a unique idea because picture it, you know, we're in Silicon Valley, it's 2005, it's Facebook has just been started and Twitter and the rise of the iPhone is about to start and Google bought this little thing called YouTube. And we were really at the beginning of such an exciting time in terms of the internet. And here I've got this housemate who wants to make pants. 
So I thought, oh, what a boring idea. Did you really? That was your first thought? It, well, I was just like, <laughs> it was cute to me. It was like a cute idea. <laughs> okay. Like wants to make better fitting pants. How the heck is he going to figure this out? He had this fabulous insight, which is if you have an athletic build as Brian does, grew up, you know, he grew up playing soccer and hockey. He used to joke that it's called hockey butt. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of are, a, you have this like bubble butt as a mm-hmm. man, which is yep. not typically how we talk about it. Yep. But when it comes to buying pants, it's important because yes. you need the pants to fit. Right. And so he would buy pants that would fit his thighs and his butt, which was a size 34. And then he would put them on and he was a trim person. He was had a you know athletic build and they would just be huge in the waist. Right. So he would take them to a tailor and get them tailored into 32 in the waist. And that turns out is a $75 alteration to have the waist altered in a, in a meaningful way. And then at some point, he had a girlfriend buy him a sewing machine so he could do that alteration himself because he's like a lot of entrepreneurs, very frugal and doesn't want to waste money on a $75 alteration with that sort of can-do attitude of, hey, I can do that alteration. I can figure that out. And then the genius thing that he did was eventually say, I ought to take a few of these pants that I bought that I have tailored to a pattern maker, an apparel you know, fashion pattern maker, and have them see if we can make these pants not post-alteration. But from the jump, like this is how the pants should fit. And that was the insight behind the fit of Bonobos. And it turns out you have to curve the waistband, which the pattern maker figured out. And the best way to understand that is if you've ever bought a leather belt and worn that belt a lot and you hang it, you know, in your closet, it has a sickle shape to it. Sure. And so Bonobos pants are made with that and then combine that with sort of energetic prints and fabrics and the kind of the joie de vivre that he put into the product. And he started selling these pants like hotcakes to our friends. And that's how Bonobos was born. Okay. So this is so interesting. So your initial thought is this is a cute idea. Um, And then at some point you realize, okay, maybe there's some validity. What point do you jump on ship and want to be part of it and part of the business? Does he draw you in or do you say to him, Brian, I want to be a part. I want to help you. Yeah. I was a customer. You know, the way that one often falls in love with a company or a product or a brand is you become a user of it. And so I had this like turquoise corduroy blue, really cool. Like it was like a 21 whale corduroy. The whales are the number of little ridges that you have in an inch. And so it was called like a micro whale. It had stretch and it was turquoise. It was just so fun. I remember wearing them to a wedding in Hawaii, you know, to like the Friday night thing. And everyone was commenting on the pants. They were very conversational. Is that why you jumped on board? Or like, did he draw you in and say, hey, I need somebody. I need somebody like you to sell this. I mean, what, what, which, what, what was the dynamic if you had to pinpoint it? It was so emergent and organic. I think the, the moment that I remember is being the photographer, because I love to take pictures and had a nice camera for the website. Okay. And so- So you were helping him. Bailey is like in our backyard modeling pants. I'm taking pictures. And then over a drink, you know, we're we're writing descriptions because we took a lot of pride at that time in like the product description of the pants was like a story. Yeah. It was a story about a person. We had the Capertons, which was named after a friend of ours. It was a Nantucket red pant. All the guys wore them to the wedding. It was a very New England, you know, mm-hmm. lobstery, you know, feel. Yes, Nantucket, Nantucket Red. So there was a story behind it. It was the joy of creative collaboration that was one ingredient in the partnership that emerged. Then there was another ingredient, which was I was obsessed with the consumer internet. 
So mm -hmm. I was interviewing at Facebook and Yelp and all these companies. Okay, this is interesting. So you were thinking you were going to work in tech. I was going to work in tech. Okay, and then obviously you, at some point you, you you're realizing the genius of the product, and you're and he's a great friend, and you're saying, wait, maybe I can contribute here. Is that kind of how it happened? Yeah, and even building on that, I started to think, well, maybe this is the tech company I've been looking for, which is what if it's not just pants, but it's pants sold on the internet. Sure. And then sure. started poking around and it was like, wait a second, no one's really built a brand ground up on the internet. In fact, there was a theory at that time that apparel wouldn't work online because of returns and exchanges and fit. It was really contrarian in 2007 that you would build an apparel brand on the internet. Although Zappos had done it. Zappos was the yeah. rumor that so Zappos, no one really knew what was happening at the time other than they did this big investment round with Sequoia. And that was itself interesting because you had a venture capital firm investing in a retailer, mm -hmm. which doesn't happen. So there was this conflation of is it a retail company or is it an internet technology company? There's this funny thing in life. I don't know if you've experienced this, Kate, where it almost sometimes feels like something painful was preparation for something later. Yes. But you don't many, realize many it until times, later. Many times. Andy. Yeah. Like I've got this <laughs> book on the shelf here that says someday this pain will be useful to you. <laughs> and I feel like it's a good framework. This wasn't that much pain, but I had spent a very cold winter in Dodgeville, Wisconsin as a consultant in my first job out of college working on Sears's acquisition, Sears Roebuck's acquisition of Land's End. And so I had seen at a mm. front row seat the way that a catalog retailer could build a really close relationship with the customer. Mm -hmm. I remember being in the call, the Land's End call center one day and seeing a note from one of the customers that said to the call center person saying like, Dear Elizabeth, thank you so much for waking me up the morning of my wedding. My bridesmaids wanted to sleep in. My mom was a mess. Like, you're the best. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is a Land's End customer yeah. who called the Land's End call center. And said, can you give me a call tomorrow morning and wake me up for my wedding? Yeah. And I thought, okay, that's really powerful. The connection that you can have with a direct consumer relationship where you actually remove the storage from the equation. It seems like if you can do that with the catalog, you should be able to do that even better with the internet, given mm. the power, the potential for personalization. And that was where the genesis of Bonobos really formed between, I remember our first investor pitch deck, we said, you know, we're going to be a fashion brand like Ralph Lauren but with a distribution model that's e-commerce more like Zappos. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of a, of a really new way to think about brand building. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make Try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You bring up a great point, talking about referencing that book that's um, on your bookshelf about how pain, we can learn from it. Because one of the things that I walked away from your book myself with, I could not believe how self-aware you were in writing the book because you really reveal all of where you think you went wrong and what you learned, but also so not self-aware while you were living it. Right? <laughs> like I was just like, if, if I had one question to ask you, where do you think that disconnect came from? Did you need time to really analyze and immerse yourself in what happened and process it to write the book? Or how, how could you be so not self-aware living it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Generations of people that I've interacted with are laughing right now at that question. <laughs> um, I did learn that there is a difference between self-awareness and self-regulation, mm-hmm. right? So self-awareness might be Let's just say like something something minor, like you always know that you're late. You just know you're a person that's late. And so when you're late, you apologize to the person. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I'm late or I'm a late person. And then at some point, if you're in like a longitudinal relationship with someone professionally or personally, it's like a real problem if you have a late person and an on-time person that are like in a dynamic. Mm. And so at some point, the sorry is empty if you don't change your behavior. Sure. And so self-awareness is an input to self-regulation, but it's not enough. You actually have to like make the change. And so I think you're right on two levels. Like on one level, there were things that I was self, that I was not self-aware about yet that I needed the benefit of hindsight to appreciate. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that you cultivate self-awareness is you have people tell you Mm -hmm. what your blind spots are. And I wasn't that easy to deal with in that regard. I had a proclivity to just defend rather than to bring the walls down and hear it. Whereas now, after, I don't know, you know, almost a decade of therapy and being married to someone who's fabulous at feedback and direct conversations, 
in a lot of work, my posture towards feedback is, okay, this might be a little hard to hear, but it's information that's helpful mm-hmm. and I can do something about it. Interesting. And literally two days ago, my wife goes, you're calling everyone buddy and it's a little weird. <laughs> like you're like, thanks. Noted. Buddy. Yeah. She's like, thanks buddy. She's just like, there's a lot of buddy and it feels kind of like condescending. And I just was like, whoa, that's weird. Why am I doing that? Because normally I had like a, I had like a thanks sir thing. Yes. You bring up a great point. You need people to check you. I didn't even know. Yeah. If you don't have people checking you, then that's what happens. So yesterday I was picking up my car at the garage and my first, I said, thanks buddy. And then I was like, oh my gosh, it's really there. (laughs) And then I was like, I appreciate it, sir. And there we go. go. Better. Yeah. So it was, it was a little thing. And so first we need feedback, which means we need to surround ourselves with people who have the courage to give it to us, who care enough to give it to us. And we have to be able to hear it. And so that was kind of step one is I didn't have that. Was Brian not doing that for you? I mean, here he is a really good friend, someone you had cultivated in a platonic way prior to business. Was he giving you feedback or were you just not listening? For the first two years, he was. And it was part of, I think, the breakdown in our partnership as I didn't, I wasn't big enough to hold it. Yeah. And because of other dynamics, I was at a stage in my life where it was easier to externalize blame. Yeah. Internalize it. And I found in life, partly from having been a blame externalizer, it's so much nicer to deal with professionally, personally, and be in business with people who are blame internalizers, which is why I took the approach that I did in the book of rather than cast dispersions at other people, which might feel good, how do I just hold myself accountable to the ways that I showed up? And so I think that the benefit of hindsight and surrounding oneself by truth tellers being open to it. For me, those things took like maturity and life kind of kicking my butt yeah. repeatedly to develop that. And it, it really wasn't until 2014, six years into building the business, going through the demise of another professional friendship in business, going through a really hard breakup in my personal life. That was the moment where I had this like amazing thing of like, oh my God, like I'm the problem. I've been thinking all these other people were the problem. I'm the problem. <laughs> like I've lived long enough. That was when the journey evolved for me. That was the that was the inflection point. But that's exactly what's so brilliant about this book. Most people never get there. Most people do not have the humility. When you read the book, I don't think of you as a humble person in this book, <laughs> but you have to have the humility to really get to that point where you're like, I was wrong here, I was wrong here, I was wrong here. So that's what's so stunning to me. I wanna talk a little bit about when you look at, you talk a lot about what you weren't good at in the book, culture building, there's a lot about creating a culture and where you went wrong. What do you think you were really good at from from an empirical standpoint when it came to business? Like where were you clutch? Yeah, when I invest behind entrepreneurs now, either as an angel investor or through Red Swan, the first thing that I look for, and maybe this is a little self-dealing because it's my answer to your question, which is the thing that I feel like I'm best at, Mm -hmm. is magnetism. So being able to attract both people to work at the company, the startup, and capital to raise money to be able to pay those individual salaries that is everything if you're going to build a venture capital-backed company is the ability to attract that 
And I think at its core, there's a whole bunch of things that go into that magnetism. Mm -hmm. But a big part of it is storytelling, Mm -hmm. the ability to tell a story. And I think humans as a species, right, we have the power of stories is is wired into our DNA. It's a part Mm -hmm. of how we've evolved. And that's something that I loved doing from a long time ago. Like I can remember even at the age of 20, I was in college and I I wanted to be the rush chair of our fraternity, which, you know, is the term for people who, who extend quote unquote, you know, bids for someone to join. And I remember we had 24 bids that we extended and we had 23 that were accepted. And I've forgotten almost all of those 23 people, but I remember Andy Stone is the one person that said no because I was so pissed. (laughs) I was like, how could this guy not take a bid to join Sigma Chi? This is the best place. And I just blew my mind because I'd worked so hard at it. And so that magnetism is so essential. And I think it's one of my skill strengths. I, I interview so many female entrepreneurs who say one of the hardest things to do is to raise capital. It is a skill in and of itself. And you, in a way, have to, as you say, storytell, but lay out a plan that is so enticing for anyone willing to give money. I'm just wondering, and throughout the book, you're having, you're facing having to raise millions of dollars. I feel like every other chapter was like, I got to raise another 20 million. I got to raise another 20 million. I mean, the stress of it. What advice would you give to someone who has to go out and pitch and has to raise that money. What advice do you, when you're nurturing a young entrepreneur who has to go out and ask for money, what do you do and what can you say? What advice can you offer? Well, you said something so important around the women that you talk to and and I wanna invert it a little bit in terms of advice and say as the husband of an entrepreneur, my wife Manuela Zonenstein, who's building an amazing company in the climate space, as the brother of an amazing female entrepreneur, my sister Monica, who's got a baby apparel brand, Monica Nandy. Which I love. Oh, amazing. Oh my gosh, yes. With my three boys have all worn Monica Nandy. Yeah, thank you. And so I see on the front lines how hard it is for them to raise capital. It's hard for anyone to raise capital, but it is it is systematically almost impossible if you are a woman or a person of color to raise money. If you look at all the venture capital deployed, only 3% of it right. goes to female CEOs. Right. And so my advice is to venture capitalists to be aware of that bias, to recognize sure. it. It doesn't mean you need to practice something of like investing in something that you're not excited about. But to be aware and to make sure that you're seeing entrepreneurs of all stripes before you're making your decisions, looking at the slate of people that you're you're talking to, the pitches that you're seeing, and making sure that that slate is representative of the population rather than the typical entrepreneurial population. And, And I think on the entrepreneur side, there are two things that come to mind. One is having some hubris. Right, which is like if you look at people that are successful fundraising, there is an audacity to the vision that they're painting, the dream that they have that verges on hubris. Yes. And we can look in sort of the public zeitgeist at entrepreneurs who were able to translate that hubris into building really enormous companies. Right. The Walter Isaacson biography on Elon Musk just came out. You know, like him or not, he clearly has got the ability to dream so big. Right. And those 
dreams I've found, you kind of look at that person, you're like, this person's crazy, quote unquote, which is a fun alternate title of the book was Here's to the Crazy Ones was an idea that my publisher put forth. And it's in the end of the Walter Isaacson book. And he talks about Musk and he talks about Steve Jobs and says that there is just element of, he puts it in a funny way around like, do you need to be a man child who's crazy to build something? Uh, do you need to be an emotional toddler? And and I think that there is something to be learned there. And then we have hubris run amok, right? And you get yes. uh, Sam Bankman Freed from FTX and you get Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos and maybe arguably Adam Newman from WeWork. And now we have a whole like cultural, you can turn on Hulu and Netflix and now see what happens when hubris runs amok. But we need we need some of that. And then I think the second thing is more tactical, which is mm -hmm. creating FOMO, mm -hmm. creating a fear of missing out. And so I always joke like venture capitalists have two gears, first gear and sixth gear, which is either like, nice to meet you, would love to keep learning more. And they just never want to say yes because they don't have to. Mm -hmm. And then they have a gear of like, wait, your round is oversubscribed and the train's leaving the station and I need to commit by Friday. And then they're having a panic and they're calling their partnership together and say like, this thing is going fast. So you have to create the illusion of scarcity when often there is none. You have to say something like, you need to commit by next Friday. I'd love to have you. Or this is going away, even though you know that no one's in. Okay, this is brilliant. Two, the two things you mentioned, I think are absolutely brilliant. Yesterday, I had the privilege of interviewing Richard Branson about his virgin empire. And he, while he didn't say what you said, he was what you said, right? His ability to dream big, his ability to imagine being in space, his obviously virgin music and then virgin aviation, all of that came down to someone, he's dyslexic. He's someone who never was a good in school. He was someone who, when it came to accounting and all that, he never looked at the numbers, right? He absolutely was just went on a gut feeling and an idea and he ran with it. And he has the hubris that you're talking about. And I can't believe we're 38 minutes into this interview and I have yet to talk about how this book is also a mental health journey. But I actually think it's kind of a good segue because part of your ability to dream and your hubris, you explain in the book, is somewhat tied to what you believe was your initial mental health diagnosis. Can you talk about that and how, in a way, your mental health journey has served you in yeah. this journey? Yeah, I mean, the headline here is that when I was 20, I was diagnosed with bipolar type one. Bipolar is a mood disorder. It more or less means that your highs are higher and your lows are lower than the typical range of human emotion. And that can become massively problematic in terms of how high you can go and how low you can go. For bipolar one, the depression can be so severe that the suicide attempt rate at least looking retrospectively, is 60%. And the suicide rate itself, 19%. So really unacceptably low lows. And then on the high side, you get two mood states, mania and hypomania. Mania is full-blown psychosis. It's messianic delusions, delusions of grandeur. Folks stop sleeping, racing a mile a minute, cycling mood states. And really the only way out of that is medication and mm -hmm. typically hospitalization. And that was the mood state that landed me in the hospital at the age of 20 in the, the psychiatric ward where I spent a week. And I was diagnosed with this condition on the way out. 
and then was in denial of its existence for the next 16 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the entrepreneurial journey as a roller coaster. It is understood to be its own form of mood disorder. Mm-hmm. And yet there is a stripe of entrepreneurs who are also dealing with a mood disorder in addition to the job, which creates its own roller coaster. And, you know, the data shows that perhaps 2% of American adults live with bipolar. For entrepreneurs, that's 11%. Wow. So when you meet an entrepreneur, according yes. to the University of California, San Francisco, there's a one in 10 chance you're talking to someone who has bipolar. And it's not surprising in a sense, because when you're in the hypomanic state, which is the antecedent to mania, you're you're not manic, meaning you're not delusional, but you're close. Grandiosity, lack of sleep, relentless optimism, incredible energy. These are all characteristics of an entrepreneur having a good day. Right? Definitely. They are the characteristics of what makes a great entrepreneur. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a lot that's being written now about what's called the hypomanic edge. There's a book by that title that talks about how this state of hypomania is so useful to tremendous output. And that might be an entrepreneur, that might be as an artist, that might be as a filmmaker, that might be as an actor, that might be as an athlete. You know, there's a Netflix special that came out two weeks ago about Johnny Menzel called Johnny Football, and he reveals his bipolar diagnosis in it, which might explain, you know, his ridiculous level of energy and partying. And then how once he, you know, was drafted in the NFL, he fell into a deep depression when he was in training camp and he really never became the quarterback that he might have been if his mood disorder had been in check, you know, which is where fast forward 22 years, 23 years later, which is now where I have such a important regimen, you know, of medication and sleep and seeing a doctor twice a week and all these things. But certainly that hypomanic state can be fuel, you know, jet fuel for the entrepreneurial drive. You're, you know, we talk about being almost delusional in vision, right? Like that is what gets most entrepreneurs to really get the venture capital funding, right? The fact that they can create this amazing dream. But if that's natural to you, it's part of who you are, it makes sense that it would actually lead to greater success. I'm wondering from you, you write a very personal book. You are incredibly honest. And I'm just wondering once it came out, how has that been? Once you actually put it out in the world and said it, it's one thing to say it to yourself in a book and it's really, really well-written. But what is it like to have it out in the world? It's been amazing. It's been truly amazing. So many learnings. The first is that I think people connect so much more to vulnerable disclosure than they do to triumphant stories. Amen. Yeah, full stop right there. That's that, that alone. I think that's absolutely true. It's massive. And it's it's kind of the opposite of what we think. We think we need to project strength. We think when someone says, how are you? We need to say like, I'm good. Right. Things are really solid. The truth is, is that the right answer to how are you is I'm terrible. <laughs> Meaning it's a disarming honesty about the truth of the situation. And I'll, yeah. I practice this. So, and it's hilarious now that I'm back in the Midwest, people say like, how are you doing? And I'll just be like, not great today. <laughs> Or, or I'll say, if it's a good day, I will say, you know you know how life is. Like some days are good and some days aren't and today happens to be a good day. So I won't lie. Right. If it's a good day, I'll share it because yeah. that's important too. But we've got to um, be aware that 
paradoxically, the worse we're doing, the more curious other people are. Because the Buddha was right. You know, the human condition has a bedrock of suffering built into it, mm -hmm. right? And it begins with the fact that we're all mortal. And it continues with the fact that we are all in our lives at some point going to face physical health issues. It turns out that most of us are going to face mental health issues as well, whether they are our own or they are stimulated by the people that we love. And we could talk more about mental health, which is that there's kind of two ways to define it. There's mental illness, which is a subset of us. And then there are acute mental health crises, which spare none of us, right? Because the loss of a loved one is a mental health acute crisis, financial stress, a breakup, all these things that all of us at some point deal with create a mental health challenge, which is why we need to broaden the aperture and say, hey, this is all of us. This isn't just this tarnished group of people who have a diagnosis. So the learning has been share it, share it, share what is hard because it actually will build more influence and more followership and more connection. And it will open up more possibility for bilateral honesty and the deepening of human relationships than hiding it. That's, mm -hmm. that's kind of been the first learning. And the second one, and I say this in a joking way, is nobody cares about you in the best possible way, mm -hmm. which is like outside of your mom, and your dog and like maybe your kids and hopefully your your spouse or partner if you have one the vast majority of people don't care about you in a way that is good mm -hmm. which is to say they're not codependent on how you're doing mm -hmm. and your life stories darkest secrets or biggest traumas are going to be their passing thought right? It's just the way it is because we are all necessarily for our own survival focused on ourselves. Yeah. And so when we hear about someone else's struggle, it's not a big deal for us to hear that. It's a big deal for them. And so if you take the frame that your big deal is not someone else's big deal, maybe that frees up the possibilities to explore the, the potential of that disclosure. And so for me, I always assumed if I shared that I had bipolar disorder, that people would be viewing me differently. Wow, that Andy, he's got that thing. And they would be thinking about me in a different way. And then the secret was this, nobody was thinking about me at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? No one was <laughs> yes. going home being like, oh, I wonder whether Andy Dunn has a mood disorder or not. Right. And once they know it, it's like a new, it's a new thing that they know insofar as it doesn't impact them. Now, if you are someone's loved one or if you are someone's boss or whatever, there's more to think about there. And that's right. why disclosure needs to be strategic. It doesn't mean all the way. It doesn't mean right at once. I don't want to underestimate the challenges to disclosure. But these, these learnings, I wish I could transmit to everyone that these secrets that we hold actually hold such important power for human connection. When you started to write the book, was your intention to get your journey on paper and then helping others became a byproduct? Or what was at the very heart of writing this book? It was two forces at the same time, one selfish and one altruistic. The altruistic one was, I know this story is going to be useful to other people. I know that for my mom's journey, for example, from when I was diagnosed when I was 20 till now, there, there's enormous pain 
that she has experienced being the parent of someone with bipolar. It's so hard. And I thought about all the moms and dads who are going to get hit by this sledgehammer out of nowhere of this di- you know, this thing that their child has. And I thought, I want them to be able to go home and do some online research and see burn rate there yeah. side by side with a bunch of other amazing, amazing books. Right. Starting with my hero, K. Redfield Jameson, and who wrote the original, like the OG bipolar memoir, which is An Unquiet Mind, and just came out with a new book called Touch with Fire, which I can't wait to read. Or a military general who just wrote a book called Bipolar General about, hey, what's it what's it like to command US forces if you have bipolar mm-hmm. disorder? And I have so many questions about this. Like, what if you're a heart surgeon? What if you're an airline pilot? Like, what do you do with the secret mm-hmm. if it could create genuine and merited concern about your ability to your job. Because mm-hmm. at least with entrepreneurs, we expect entrepreneurs to be crazy, right? <laughs> or, delu- or delusional, right? At least it's like, yeah. okay, that person's delusional, we'll take it. Do you want a delusional airline pilot? No. So it's complicated. It's yeah. just complicated stuff. And different professions are on different speeds here. It always starts with entertainers, right? Yeah. Because entertainers are here for what? To entertain us. So whether or not they're of sound mind is almost not of interest to us because their art is going to be less interesting if they're of sound mind, right? How many eminently balanced people have ever, you know, been in front of 75,000 people at a rock concert? So the first step was I thought the story could be in service to others. That was the altruistic one. The selfish one is I wanted to get this shame that I had internalized from two decades of not talking about this Mm -hmm. out of my body. Yeah. And what I learned about shame from writing this book and this journey is Shame is what is unspeakable. Mm-hmm. Shame is what we can't talk about. Right. And, so and when we, we do, it changes the game. It changes the game. And I yeah. felt, candidly, I felt so angry. Mm. Not at anyone in particular. Yeah. Although certainly in the book, I tried to unpack the complexity with family and friends. Primarily, I felt so angry with the conditions society creates around mental illness that I was made to, or at least I felt I was made to feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had this human stain, Mm -hmm. this thing that made me bad, Mm -hmm. this undiscussable, unknowable thing. By the way, I thought that I actually was the thing, right? Because, and I've made this point now in the TED Talk that I was privileged to do this past year, which is we would never say someone is cancer. We would say they have it because being cancer would be really that, that, sounds unfathomably bad. In fact, it's actually a terrible insult when we say someone is cancerous to the culture. Mm -hmm. But to be cancer, even worse, and yet we say it with bipolar. It's normal to say Andy is bipolar. And it's like, no, 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 no. I have it. And there is a massive difference between being something and having it. But when we conflate the being with the and the having, we're, we're basically making transparent how deeply flawed our processing is of mental illness in our culture. And so by sharing everything in the book, it was my way of saying there is nothing shameful about this. The only thing, and someone wouldn't be shameful, but the only thing that wouldn't be right would be if I wasn't doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to create that call to action for people who have mental health conditions which is like, hey, we actually have a job to do now, which is to deal with this thing. 
we we need to recognize that this is hard for ourselves and others. And so, okay. And that's the last part of the book, which is a little bit on how I got healthier. And I think that's the that's the next step that's so important for all of us. Well, you you had the courage to really speak your truth. And I think one of the things that happens when when you see people do that, it gives other people the courage to speak their truth. And any grievances that people have ever had with you throughout your life, whether that's Brian, which that relationship was very complicated. You know, reading your book is a cell, is sort of a, a balm in some way, because at least you can see the trajectory and you can see what happened. Do you still keep in touch with Brian? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I now see Brian probably once or twice a year for a meal. That's great. And it's always entertaining, you know, we're like, <laughs> We're like an old married couple or something now yeah. that, you know, got divorced once upon a time. Yeah, and, you were friends first. And, you know, business partnership is like a marriage. And so now we can reflect back. And I think, you know, the beautiful thing about life is every year you get a year older and all these other things that come of like being in a real marriage, yes. being a parent with good fortune and with perspective enables you to look back and process things in a way where I can now say like, I think I was actually the difficult person here. Yeah, we can all evolve, right? We, yeah, isn't, that, isn't it wonderful to to remember that? That and your book is proof of that that we can all evolve. Brian and I had an awesome convo. My, on my list of favorite places to dine is the Pita Inn on Skokie here in Chicago, which is great falafel and hummus. Brian and I sat down at the Pita Inn while I was writing the book, and I said, "Hey, I've got this book coming out, and I wanted to see if you were okay with it." And I said. I thought there'd be a chapter or two on our partnership. And it turns out that part two of the book is really becoming an, you know, a big part of it. And I said, you know, the takeaway for me from that section is that I blamed you for a lot of things that I think in retrospect were my fault. Mm. And Brian goes, see, that's why I'm not worried about the book. Do you know how many guy friends I have who are getting divorced, who are complaining to me about their wives? And I'm, I look at them and I say, I know your wife. She's a good woman. You're the problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, and it just was, it was such a supportive thing for him to say. And I think it speaks to his character that he was like, sure, yeah. put this out there. Yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I don't want to take any more of your time. You've been very generous with it. And, um, the book burn rate by Andy Dunn, I recommend it. And I, I wish you the very best and whatever's next for you. I'd love to see you launch back into the world of startups and hopefully see incredible success. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefortwithkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.